Hello and welcome to The Rate Debate. I'm Darren Langer, co-head of Fixed Income at Yarra Capital, and joining me is my co-portfolio manager, Chris Rands. Hello, everyone. Well, it's the uh, first Tuesday of April and the RBA has just met. And um, I guess there was a little bit that came out of this meeting. There was certainly a bit of expectation, Chris, around um, whether they would remove the word patience from their statement, which they obviously have, which has seemed to have got the market a little bit excited. But you know, the way I read it, it was pretty, pretty vanilla or pretty bland. They seem to be just really waiting for data to give them a catalyst to move, which I, I don't think is dramatically different to what they've been saying probably for the last two years. They, they want some evidence before they move rates. But I guess the, the market's the market and it thinks they now have evidence and that it's an eminent uh, move in rates as early as June. So uh, what was your take? Yeah, pretty similar, I think. When I read the statement, it felt like one of the kind of more boring or blandest statements that I've seen in quite some time. But certainly the market got very excited when they saw it. I think when I look at that statement, kind of what I would think about that is all of the kind of dovish language of the past 18 months has now completely gone with the patient word being removed. And so now they're saying to us, if the data comes the way we expect, then we're going to be ready to go. I I know we're going to be talking about what the market's forecasting at the moment, but certainly it's a tip to the direction is probably going to be up as long as we see the data come through the way they're expecting it to. Yeah, I think realistically early on in the pandemic, you know, we saw the risks that there could be further downside in rates, but you know, we expected probably once they cut to zero that we'd probably seen as much as they would do and that the next move would be up. I think now, as you say, we're we're probably in that situation where the next move is definitely up. I guess the the question uh, we need to answer is how much. Market's built in an awful lot. And, and I guess we'll spend the next um, couple of minutes just talking through some of the things that we're seeing and some of the reasons that we think perhaps markets are a little bit ahead of themselves. And I guess that's a good segue into... Um, you know, looking at something that we think is the best indicator for future path of interest rates, and that's really the yield curve. The yield curve is showing a very different story to what the market front end, at least, is pricing in. I, I think we're now up to certainly around a, a peak cash rate of 3% in Australia and, and considerably higher in the US. But long-term rates are still struggling around that sort of 2.5% level. Um, and don't really seem to go through that a lot, which is telling you something that perhaps, you know, the market actually truly believes long-term rates are stuck at 2.5%. The question we've got to ask really is, our economies is really as strong as everyone believes? That's the first question that comes to my mind. Yeah, we're starting to certainly see, I guess, mixed information from what the yield curve is saying to what kind of forward economic indicators are saying. So, you know, a lot of the forward economic indicators, whether it's business conditions, kind of employment conditions, look at what people are expecting for wages, most of those are pointing up. But as you said, one of the best indicators of of kind of future problems is is the yield curve. And and when it inverts, usually there's trouble. I kind of take the the yield curve and and when it inverts a little bit differently to the market so that the market would say once the yield curve inverts you're probably expecting a recession in six to 12 months but i think it's more giving us a signal that the market is just kind of not super happy long term with what is being priced in 
for the cash rate over the next few years. The simplest way to think about that is, you know, if you're an investor, you can you can buy a three-year bond and at the moment you'll get about two and a half percent. Or you could take the cash rate for the next three years and, and kind of, I guess, gamble on, on on what the average is going to be over the three years. You can extend that as well to the 10-year bond. And, and the fact that the 10-year bond is not pushing up much through 250 kind of tells us that it's not expecting the cash rate to stick above 2% for long. You know, my reading of this is if the central banks do jag the cash rate up above 2% over the next 12 months, which is what the market is forecasting, they're probably going to cause some problems in the economy that then require the cash rate to be pulled down after that. So, you know, you can read the the curve inversion as saying a recession must come, or I think you can read it kind of the way I am at the moment and saying, if the central banks are as, as aggressive as they're talking about, they'll probably cause some real problems in the economy. Yeah, and it's certainly a problem that we're seeing, uh, a phenomenon anyway, that we're seeing globally, not just in Australia and certainly not just in the US. We're pretty much seeing flatter curves right across the, the rate spectrum. And yet, you know, most of the rhetoric around economies are that they're as strong as they've ever been. And I guess that's that's one of the things where I, I start to, you know, call out, you know, is this um, seriously correct? Because, you know, if you, if you look across history, most of these indicators are quite strong relative to the last couple of quarters. But when you look at most of the data over a long period of time, the pandemic has done some really weird things to various economic indicators, and it's made them a lot more volatile. That doesn't mean necessarily they're wrong, but they've certainly been a lot more volatile than they've been in the past. And it's really hard to get a a reading on how much of that is the fact that we've just pumped so much stimulus into all of the economies, both through monetary and fiscal policy, versus how much is likely to continue in the future uh, when we start trying to withdraw some of this stimulus. So that, that's one of the things that I, I sort of look at and say, okay, yep, the data does look strong if you only look at recent history. However, to be fair, the one thing that is probably stronger um, than pre-pandemic is, is employment. And a lot of the sort of reason we're seeing rates at least expected to go higher is that people are looking at not only inflation, but also higher wages. I mean, how how confident are we that wages are likely to go up, Chris? If you've been listening to this, you probably know that I'm not kind of super confident on the idea that just because you have a super tight labor market, that wages have to show up. The past 10 years kind of raised some question to that. And certainly I think what you're seeing from the RBA at the moment is them also questioning it. But I, I think what they're kind of pointing to in today's statement is that perhaps they're getting a little bit more comfortable that they're about to be here. Interestingly, if you look at the minutes from last month, the comment that the RBA made was that the bank's business liaison program has suggested that the distribution of wage growth expectations over the coming year are similar to the pre-pandemic pattern. So, you know, just just four weeks ago, the RBA was telling us that its business liaison program is saying that wages are still similar to pre-pandemic and we know they're growing at about two and a half percent then. What we've seen in the statement now is they've they've acknowledged that again, but because the unemployment rate has now hit four percent, I think they're getting ready to say that they're going to pick up. So this is where I think the market and the RBA are probably going to be a little bit different on their timing. If the wages come, we might be able to get what the market is talking about. But if they do not come, it's going to be far harder, I think, for the RBA to execute what they're talking about. And there's a lot happening, obviously, outside our uh, our shores as well. And 
you know, one of the things we've seen rates go higher in Australia, probably way more than even the RBA would like to uh, think is possible. And a lot of market participants, is, it's just, you know, based on what's happening in the US, which to be fair, things in the US seem to be very different. But, you know, the US is an important trading partner for Australia, but it's not certainly our biggest. You know, China still sort of holds that place and things in China look very different perhaps to what the uh, the dollar block countries around the world do. What, what are you seeing is happening in China, Chris? Perversely at the moment, if you look at our rates curve, it's moving kind of one-to-one with the US, especially the cash rate expectation. So, you know, as the US got super hawkish and they started talking about 50-point rate hikes, our market just moved one-for-one with that. And that's kind of a little bit confusing because, as you say, China's our biggest trading partner. And if you look at what's going on at China at the moment, there's actually quite a lot of people saying they need to cut rates soon and get credit growing. Just a few months ago, their monetary growth actually slipped negative. It, it bounced back a little bit. But you've got a lockdown occurring again in certain cities. And as well as that, you're starting to see some kind of shakiness, well, even more shakiness in the property sector. You know, whether that converts into some some sort of bigger problem is... I guess anybody's guess at the moment, and certainly there's probably a lot of other people talking about that. But if you look at it from the RBA's perspective, I certainly just find it weird to say, well, our rates should be moving one-to-one with the US, and then at the same time, we need to be calling for uh, for China rate cuts at the exact same time. One of the things we heard early on in the pandemic was that China came out of things much faster than the West, and they were the the shining beacon for for what the future was going to look like. Since we've seen China start to turn around and actually uh, go backwards a little bit, um, not so many people uh, thumping on the uh, the drum about China being a future indicator, which is you know it's it's kind of a bit strange that people cherry pick when they want to use China as a, as a forward indicator. But you know there, there certainly are problems in China, and the chances if they do cut rates, um, it will stimulate things again. But it probably kicks the can a little bit further down the road, which. You know, his common problem even in the West. We don't solve problems; we just cut interest rates and kick the problem further down the down the road. And China seems to be following that same model. But it is certainly, I think, something to keep an eye on because you know we could equally be in the same place in twelve months' time, particularly if we do tighten too quickly. Yeah, and I guess just to quickly play, you know, devil's advocate on that idea is that I guess. You could also say that part of the reason we have this, you know, super strong economic tie is that China affects commodity prices. And because commodity prices are are staying high in the face of a weak China, perhaps we can kind of, you know, fumble through this period without really having to kind of slow down the way that we would have maybe in 2014. Yeah, the only only question I would ask is that are commodity prices high because there's demand there or are they high because of speculation? Because as you say, China is one of the biggest consumers of commodities and you would assume that if demand for commodities is dropping in China, it's not going up globally to be replaced by anybody else. So, you know, it, it's really difficult to to sort of hold on to commodity prices staying high if China really does go into a serious tailspin. One of the other places that we, we obviously spend a lot of time looking is at housing markets around the world. And we're seeing, again, very similar patterns, not only in Australia, but also the US. We've had very, very strong and rapidly rising prices during the pandemic as interest rates came down. Yet most commentators seem to be willing to step back and say, 
the froth is going to come off housing, but we're probably not going to see any serious declines in house prices as rates rise. That sounds counterintuitive to me, but uh, that, that seems to be what a lot of um, people are saying. But one of the things that mortgage rates going up will do is affect affordability, not only you know pretty much in every economy. What do you see is tolerable based on an affordability basis? We've talked about this kind of a couple of times, and I think it depends on which country that you're looking in. So if we kind of start with Australia, but it's also interesting, I think, to look at the US at the moment, which is starting to to make some headlines, is that for Australia, when I calculate serviceability, I think that the cash rate at about 1, 1.25% would be taking the typical homeowner back to about their average kind of serviceability levels. You know, when we look at the market pricing saying the cash rate needs to be 3% in 18 months, that just seems a lot higher than where the Australian household could service. So so that's kind of, I guess, where, where we're differing from the market at the moment in saying, well, we can kind of see a 1, 1.25, but if we were to push to three, that would be a lot of trouble, particularly for the people in Sydney that have been borrowing huge sums. If you shift to the US though, I think this is probably going to become a story faster than the Australian situation because their market is actually starting to reprice faster than ours. If you look at their market, they actually use longer dated fixed rate mortgages to price their loans off. And if you look at the US 30-year mortgage rate, it's gone from about 3% up to 5% over the past couple of months. If you calculate serviceability for the US household, while the fixed rate obviously doesn't affect people who have already locked in their money, any new borrower is going to be looking at serviceability that is the worst that it's been in about 20 years. So I think partly what the curve is telling us as it starts to invert is that if you push the cash rate up such that mortgage rates are 2% higher and you're servicing a house that is 30% higher than it was about 18 months ago, you're going to really run into some affordability problems soon. So I think what we're seeing now is that, you know, part of what the curve is telling us is potentially that you can push the rates up, but it's going to start to tighten conditions very quickly to the point where you're probably going to have to slow down once you kind of do 12 months worth. One of the counter arguments to that is that if wages are rising, that obviously helps um, affordability. What kind of levels do we need to see wages rise to offset some of those interest rate gains? We've also kind of brought this up in the past. I think if we could see, you know, four to five percent wage increases for two to three years, you'd probably offset a lot of those and and really be able to start to increase the cash rate again. You know, if you look at the US, they are actually achieving five percent wage gains. So maybe maybe if those wages hang around, they'll be able to kind of push the rate up to 2% and then continue on. But for Australia, at least, if what the RBA is telling us that they're seeing firms say that, that we're still at pre-pandemic levels, if wages only grow up 2.5%, it's going to be many years before you can offset those large rate increases. One of the things that I, I look at and, and I sort of scratch my head a little bit is that the US is actually getting wage gains and yet to some extent, its um, labour market is actually shrinking, even though they're getting good unemployment outcomes. Its labour market is actually smaller than pre-pandemic, or at least um, similar sort of size. In Australia, we, we actually seem to have increased our participation as well as get unemployment down, and yet we haven't seen the same level of wage rises. So that's something that's a little bit out of kilter. Um, maybe, as people keep telling me, they're coming, but um, it does seem unusual that we can sort of really uh, running it almost capacity on a really high sort of participation level, much higher than the US. And yet, you know, we haven't really seen too many issues with labour uh, labor and, and wages. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of laugh a little bit there because certainly since I joined the market, you know, I've been told constantly that the wages are, are coming. Trust me, they're, they're just around the corner. And 
you know, maybe they are this time, but it, it kind of starts to feel a little bit of, you know, the boy who cried wolf because, you know, we've been told so long that wages are coming that when you actually go and look for a statistic which kind of forecasts it, the past 10 years has actually made it very hard to find something. You need to kind of go back to the 2000s to, to really find that indicator. As you say, though, in Australia, participation is getting very tight. It's the highest that it's ever been. And the unemployment rate is now at you know, 4%. So certainly from the RBA's perspective, I think that they're expecting that it's going to be here very soon. Either that or we can uh, finally uh, throw out those Phillips curve <laughs> models. <laughs> uh, I, I won't write them off just yet, but I, I think we're getting there. One of the other things that I, I think is a little bit strange at the moment is when we headed into the COVID pandemic, we had both fiscal and monetary policy both working together to try and achieve a, a relatively good outcome. And I think, you know, across the globe, we've managed to keep employ- people employed. We've managed to um, keep the goods flowing. In general, people probably feel better off than what they could have been if the COVID pandemic had, had not had that same um, amount of stimulus thrown at it. But now I think we're getting into a situation where fiscal and monetary policy are actually trying to work against each other. Here and in in the US, you've got the central bank wanting to tighten interest rates, yet you've got relatively uh, loose fiscal policy at the same time. So you've basically got the government trying to throw money at people, but at the same time, the RBA and the the Fed are trying to take it back out of their pockets. Do you think maybe both arms should talk to each other a little bit more? (laughs) Uh, Potentially. You know, I I kind of was laughing the other day and and, and brought this up with you. If, If you look at the Australian budget, two of the areas that uh, people were, you know, really looking for help for was some relief on the the petrol excise, which got slashed, and as well on first homeowners being able to get into the market. If you look at the inflation statistics at the moment, a lot of the inflation is coming through oil and housing. So, you know, for the federal government to be giving money for petrol and housing is really just pushing the two areas that are causing the inflation. And then on the other hand, we go and say to the RBA, well, you're behind the curve, so you need to be hiking rates to bring these things under control. At some point over the past kind of few months, the, the federal government is now kind of egging on that inflation at the same time we're now expecting the RBA to take it away. So, so maybe they should come together and, and talk about it. I, I kind of more think it's a, a function of where the inflation is coming from. If you look at a lot of the inflation, it's because the oil price keeps going higher. And, you know, the RBA doesn't really have much of a control over that. Them hiking rates isn't really going to do anything to that market. It's it's going to be based on those offshore events that we know about. And so for the government to just be passing more money on to keep the spending up kind of makes me scratch my head a little bit because I just look at it and I say, but isn't this kind of the thing you're trying to stop at the moment? Yeah, it seems a bit bit counterintuitive because you know the last thing the the government wants is is inflation to run too hard because that'll affect pension payments, it'll affect prices through the government sector in general, and then you really can get second order impacts flowing through, um, and, and then you do get this inflation idea of an inflation spiral. But it's really weird to think that the only way you can basically affect inflation when it's a, a shock like oil is to crush demand. And if you try and crush demand with interest rates at the same time you stimulate demand by giving people money to pay higher prices for the commodity that you're trying to slow down, just doesn't seem a terribly sensible thing to do. It could end up making things a lot worse. And I think 
you know, if if we're really wrong somewhere, I think it's going to come through that dynamic that by behaving anti-intuitive to, you know, basically egging inflation on, as you say, our governments could end up making uh, a much bigger problem. And then the whole debt cycle that they've built up trying to pay for the pandemic will be very, very difficult to start unwinding. Yeah, I guess the other thing that comes on on the back of kind of that comment is we keep being told that these huge debt levels that we have globally are going to be inflated away. You know, don't worry that US debt to GDP is 120%. Don't worry that, you know, Italian debt to GDP is 160%. We'll just inflate it away. Well, we've got the inflation that you need to start inflating those debts away. And now that we've got it, the answer is to quickly stomp on it. So this idea that, you know, we're going to balance the budget and we can keep running these big deficits and it's all going to be kind of happy days after that, I think is a bit of a, a mirage because the central banks are going to ensure that doesn't happen. And that might just leave us at a point of the government has to continue providing that support because at some stage the voters are going to be expecting these handouts to continue coming. That paints a picture of, you know, what we're seeing in the economy and some of the the risks so being bond managers, I guess the, the million dollar question for us is, are bonds starting to get to a point where they, they make sense again? Are they an attractive, an attractive rate level where you maybe want to think about owning some and have markets pushed things too far? I guess, you know, listening to us, most listeners would probably think that we, we're very much in the camp of that they probably push things way too far for what we think is sustainable. But does that really mean bonds are an attractive investment at the moment? What do you think, Chris? I certainly think it looks cheap, especially when you compare the bond levels to history. So the the measure that we often talk about is the spread between the 10-year bond and the cash rate. It's basically only been higher in two very kind of particular circumstances, which is 94 and 2009, both of which saw the cash rate jag up by about 200 to 300 basis points. If, you know, our calculations kind of end up being correct that the RBA can hike rates, but, you know, it stops closer to 1%, then certainly there's points across the bond curve that do look cheap compared to kind of that 1% expectation. If we're wrong and the RBA can push cash above 3%, then it's probably not that cheap. So it's really going to come down to, you know, how much do you think the homeowner in Australia can wear in terms of the cash rate moving as setting up for just kind of how much value you think is sitting there or not? The last month or so has probably been the worst losses that we've seen in bond markets, certainly in my time in markets. I certainly don't think we're going to keep seeing those kinds of losses. Markets obviously can continue to adjust and we would expect volatility to be heightened for some time. Things are not going to settle down immediately uh, for all the reasons that we talk about. You know, we've still got stuff happening in, in the Ukraine with Russia that's certainly going to keep you know volatility in markets higher than we expect. But we probably got to a point where bonds have repriced to a level that we would say is pretty close to the worst case scenario. And you know, as I said, that doesn't mean they can't go higher, but it's getting to a point now where they're probably factored in a lot of very bad news. And our view is that to get to these sorts of levels, it would be a much slower process. Um, whilst we may end up with cash rates at 3% at some point over the next couple of years, it's unlikely to be in the next 18 months. And I think that's that's probably the, the thing investors should think about is not only how high rates will go, but how quickly they'll get there. Um, and just to throw back to a point in history, one of the longest tightening cycles we had was in the uh, early 2000s, where we moved rates 3%. 
it probably doesn't sound a lot, but that was actually the biggest tightening cycle, at least in, in the modern era of monetary policy. And that was done over a couple of years. And, and you know, it was a pretty good time for the economy in, in general. Things went pretty well because the, the central bank took it slowly and they only tightened when they felt they had to. We didn't have really low inflation through that period. We actually had reasonable inflation, but you know that doing it slow and steady meant that they could extend the cycle out longer. And we think that will ultimately be a good outcome if we can get rates up to a more normal level, but over a much longer period of time than it's currently being priced in. Well, that's it for this month. If you ever want to suggest topics or discuss anything further with Chris and I, we can be contacted at the rate debate at yarracm.com. Tune in next month when we deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's May rate decision and provide an update on what's been happening in markets. Until then, stay safe. The Rate Debate podcast content may contain general advice. Before acting on anything in this podcast, you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor. The actions based on information within this podcast are strictly at your own risk. Any mention of past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.